Happy November, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Keeping Green. We are broadcasting at CJSW 90.9 FM. As the leaves continue to drift from the trees, I hope you all can join me in welcoming the winter season on the traditional territories of Treaty 7 land, which include the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprised of the Tsitsika, the Pekani, and the Kaina First Nations, the Tsitsina First Nations, and Stodi Nakoda First Nations, comprised of the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. Mokinsis, and now called Calgary, is also home to the Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3. So this episode is not going to be like the other ones. Um, Ian and I haven't really sat down and talked, so we're going to do that and we're going to record it. So this will be a conversation. It uh, will extend from Ian's research that he's doing currently, and we'll just touch on a few topics for the next half hour. So Ian, tell us about your project. So yeah, my project right now, basically as I move out of my master's project, I'm trying to make a seamless transition to pro bono work. Um, Ultimately, I want to run a small consulting business in environmental management with drones. And so this weekend will mark the first project uh, of mine in the, uh, in this case, the public sector. I'm doing a little pro bono project for BC Parks. And we're going to analyze a forest fire, um, actually a prescribed burn. So not a, not a real fire, but a, a controlled fire for the purposes of, um, clearing out a lot of overgrown brush and opening up the canopy to reduce the fire hazard a and to create new grazing opportunities basically improve the habitat of local fauna b Mm -hmm. so um yeah i saw the opportunity and i jumped on it and my professor over in biosci is kind enough to let me use the equipment, the drone and uh, GPS equipment. And so it's sort of like it's it's got a dual purpose. It It's going to help me kind of springboard out of my master's and into some, some real industry experience. It's also going to provide some data for um, students in his lab to, re- to sort of use in their research. So, yeah, that's the gist of it. What part are we allowed to know? What park it is? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's called it's called Premier Lake Provincial Park, and it's it's a really special area um, for me personally because um, my grandparents bought land near there in 1961, and it serves as our cottage. You know, today I'm third generation in my family, and we we go out there. It's a very beautiful, peaceful spot. Um, so it's near the park where where our family place is, and uh, but the park is also a very um, very unique representation of that of that eco region. Like it's mm-hmm. it's an area of British Columbia that's part of the Rocky Mountain Trench, also known as the Columbia Valley. So it's lower elevation than Calgary by, you know, two to three hundred meters or more, depending on what part of Calgary you're talking about. But it's it's low elevation, dry valley bottom with mixed forest um, in some places. And this particular place, it's sort of characterized by um, dry forest with spaced out trees, not like the tight 
forests of Kananaskis, but more of like the spread out forests um, where you've got grassland and 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 forest kind of interplaying. Has in it the... seen like forest fires before? Yeah. So th- this is an area that historically was characterized by much more frequent fires than say a place like Kananaskis or the Boreal up in Fort Mac. Mm-hmm. Like due to its heat and its dryness in the summer, especially I've, I've seen studies that suggest that the fire cycle down there historically was every two to 12 years especially in the Ponderosa pine forests in that region. So that's pretty frequent fire. So with that kind of fire frequency, you're lo- you're looking at forests that are very, the trees are very spaced out. Mm-hmm. And with modern fire suppression policies, modern as in the last 100 to 200 years since, you know, European settlement has been a major driving factor in North America, mm-hmm. we've seen the forest structure changing completely from the thin forest with lots of grassland intermixed with trees to just a really overgrown dense forest where in some cases almost no light reaches a forest floor at all. And that's bad for a few reasons, right? Um, it it limits certain species, certain grassland species, certain grass species. Mm-hmm. It also raises a fire hazard astronomically. And in, in this time of um, of climate climate change with a lot of uh drought um and and heat it's it's like the recipe for forest fires is it's it's pretty bad mm-hmm. um this is very complex yeah it's a complex <laughs> problem yeah and um anyway in this small park it's just a postage stamp of a park but there you know that is the bc park service is trying to um bring about a uh, environmental management practice of of thinning and burning overgrown forests to re reconstitute a more historic ecosystem structure composition and function i have a few questions that i don't know if because of course like if you burn a forest that there's a lot of like bad things that are emitted into the air yeah is there and i'm aware that it like recycles the land a little bit mm-hmm. obviously with the carbon and stuff like that but seeing that we have had especially this past year like a lot of forest fires mm. um is there any other approach that you can take to revitalize that piece of land without having to burn it without having to burn yeah, yeah. no for sure and i mean you're right burning burning contributes to greenhouse gas emissions in a big way and so on our family's land um in in uh collaboration with our neighbors we've we've taken to the approach of just thinning mechanical thinning so we we take the the brush saws we take the axes and we just we clear out brush that way and we don't actually burn mm-hmm. and it's probably a lot slower it's a slower, more, um, yeah, laborious process. It's also more controlled. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes with a prescribed burn, it can get out of control. You can kill species you didn't mean to kill. Like you don't want to, you don't want to kill mature trees. Like it's a huge yeah. carbon store in a mature tree. Same with the soil. You don't want to kill the soil. You release a lot of carbon that way. Um, but if if managed properly, prescribed burns really are effective. And a lot of people do make the argument that you're just 
contributing more greenhouse gases. But but then there's a counter argument out there which says um, that process of prescribed fire it still reduce it's still how do I put this it's it still reduces CO2 emissions over the long term mm-hmm. because if a, if that place just remains untreated and it's overgrown and it does catch fire by by means of like lightning or you know some human human cause it's going to burn so hot that it's going to release a ton of carbon like everything is going to die mm-hmm. the soil is going to die and and so if you if you go that route you're 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 probably guaranteed to lose all the carbon in one event whereas if you prescribe a burn you might lose you know a fair bit of carbon but you're going to maintain the soil you're going to maintain the conifers the mm-hmm. the kind of the anchor points of the ecosystem are going to be maintained and and they're going to sort of survive mm-hmm. so if a fire if a wildfire then subsequently comes through there because you've already treated it with a prescribed fire then that wildfire is going to just kind of you know whip through and kind of lightly scorch things but it won't just sort of destroy and release all the carbon. So if you can kind of catch my drift, it's mm-hmm. fire smarting. We have to release a bit of carbon in order to store ultimately more of it. It's kind of paradoxical. I was going to say it's like a catch 22. Like you yeah. want to like you don't really want to do this, but you have to. Yeah. So you kind of got to make things worse to make things better instead yeah. of just like waiting for things to get worse and then just worse worse. <laughs> Yeah, so I yeah, I definitely understand. If you take the route of of don't treat it, just leave it and let the the carbon store up and store up and store up, then you're running the risk of of the most catastrophic fire that you'll lose it all. Yeah, and not only that, but now the you know the habitat quality is diminished. Right, right, because you're again in a, in a really thick overgrown forest where there's no light reaching the forest floor. You're choking out a lot of species, a lot of native species. Yeah. And this this is a very generalized discussion. I mean, you could break it down by eco eco region, and I'm not in the position to speak directly mm-hmm. to a lot of species. Right. Um, I'm kind of approaching this as a generalist. Uh, do you know exactly how you could manage, like for example, the animals that live in that area? Do you make sure that the species are not going to be burned or how do you yeah how do you go about that so you don't lose like as many yeah inhabitants so in this in this project that i'm about to participate in there's a there's a um a thing known as a uh wildlife tree patch and what that is is it is a small area in which they've that is the park has identified sensitive habitat for birds in this case for the goshawk and so what they've done is they've gone in ahead of the burn and they've kind of fireproofed that area. And I know this is going to sound weird, but they've fireproofed that area with fire. <laughs> they've they've kind of insulated that little uh, wildlife tree patch with enough of a scorch around the perimeter mm-hmm. to ensure that a controlled fire doesn't destroy animals in their nests in okay. in in that regard. So. But I think another thing to consider is that these burns are often small and, and strategically placed. So they're not large enough that they're going to destroy like an entire habitat. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to be undertaken where there is sensitive habitat. 
the fires are going to be undertaken in strategic places where they're going to buffer or guard against larger areas that we don't want to burn because mm -hmm. of like you say habitat loss or risk to animal mm -hmm. animal well-being have you studied anything like this before yeah so i mean Parks Canada right now is really trying to revisit this idea of pyric herbivory because they're reintroducing bison in the eastern slopes of the Rockies and Banff. And the idea is to uh, bring about the practice that was undertaken by Indigenous peoples, um, which I can't speak in detail to that, but I'm, I'm aware that Indigenous peoples practiced burning intentional burning of grassland habitats in particular to attract bison to restart that ecosystem function, but tend to also, of course, you know, uh, hunt bison for their purposes. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the park is, is re-examining this, and uh, they're reintroducing bison, and then they're burning. Mm -hmm. And, of course, they don't burn the bison. They, they right. rotate the bison to one one area of the park while well, they burn another and they let the bison come to the burned area the next season. Mm -hmm. And the, the bison feed on the renewed forage, which is always of higher quality once the fire has burned. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, a lot of time grass will literally start to choke itself out. It becomes too overgrown. And then it's, it's not as nutrient rich and it's not, um, it's not as, as optimized yeah. for, for grazers. Are they reintroducing? They're going to do that in the south of Calgary, right? Yeah, there's. I haven't kept up with it a, a ton lately, but I know there are just tons of people around who want to who want to reintroduce bison onto the onto the Alberta landscape, the prairie landscape. There's a lot of indigenous support for it. Uh, there's also a lot of opposition to it because bison they're a different animal than than the domesticated cow and I mean that figuratively and literally like they're a different project to manage altogether they don't take as well to sort of sort of intensive management mm -hmm. they they need to roam and they need to range much more freely than perhaps agriculture in North America permits and so there's a lot of people right now working on this problem how do we re-envision animal husbandry yeah in terms of of those large uh, grazing animals. It would be nice if they could reintroduce it and almost like <laughs> guarantee that it can work out. Yeah, I mean the park, I mean I don't I don't want to divulge too too much because I'm I have privileged information about the bison reintroduction project in Banff, but I know that there there are issues when bison roam onto provincial lands they're not supposed to they're supposed to stay in park uh, lands park boundary is the hard line for those bison and once mm -hmm. they leave the park it, it becomes complicated so the alberta stakeholders that is the private landowners and the province are not they're not in the same uh mindset as, mm -hmm. as the parks canada officials right now um, That's difficult. Like, they have to have good relations in order for that to work yeah. out. Bison will have to get visas to cross <laughs> park boundaries. Yeah, it seems preposterous, really, yeah. to enforce, you know, our our sort of different political lines onto a project as organic and 
sort of grassroots as as that mm-hmm. like you know we're we're trying to do species reintroduction we're trying to rebuild an ecosystem like we need to understand where our position comes from yeah and i think it comes from a lot of places and it's 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 valid you know yeah um, there is a lot of things to consider much as like the support may want to like um have a lot of optimism towards a project like that because there is a lot of good that could come from that but in this day and age especially like in the province of Alberta there's mm-hmm. like a lot of political atmosphere that plays into decisions like that especially when it comes to the indigenous practices and again yeah for a good reason because there's so many things that can impact like now the movement and the natural cycle of a bison mm-hmm. for example highway and then just like traffic noise or building noise or boundaries like you said it would be a beautiful thing to reintroduce and mm-hmm. have it be like it was 200 years ago but a lot has changed since then yeah definitely it's sort of like i i think a bridge to this this reintroduced bison uh concept is is grass finished beef right as opposed to you know intensively managed feedlot style cattle and and beef industry you know we we move as a society toward consensus on grass finished cattle mm-hmm. that involves letting them range like we would bison you know letting them um letting them reintegrate with the grassland habitat and you know cows are not perfect but they're they're not bad either you know like you can um sustain a grassland in this province by ranging cattle mm-hmm. and is the beef more expensive you bet because it takes longer to raise um it's not as intensive so you're not you know from an economic standpoint it doesn't make as much sense mm-hmm. but i'm willing to give up um the majority of my beef consumption and just eat beef on occasion and only, you know, support local farmers who are grass finishers uh, of their, of their product, you know, yeah. they, sorry, finish their product on grass, their, yeah. their cattle on grass. And, um, and so that's something to contend with as we wrestle with the ultimate question of how do we bring bison back into the, into the mix mm-hmm. and, uh, um, so it's a fascinating topic. It really is. Actually, the now that you bring bring it up, it's it's a matter of perspective too. Because yeah, in economic standpoint, it doesn't make any sense. But in the long run, if you take a look at the other issues that come from like yeah. mass-produced beef, there is a lot at stake. Um, there's my punt for the day. <laughs> um, but in the long term, it is a better choice and. That's what I kind of mentioned in the last episode, too, was moderation. Mm. Um, the fact that you could probably just uh, compromise the amount of beef that you're intaking. And instead of buying it so frequently at a cheaper cost, consider supporting your local farmer and um, compromising a little bit more of a higher price for a better quality of meat. Oh. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> like you have to think about hidden costs, right? Mm-hmm. Like we didn't do that with oil and gas for de- for decades. We didn't think about hidden costs. 
we just charged what what made sense and people made profits like crazy and and it was like wow this is just the best way to live life and make money and this province thrived for decades and we were the have province and people you know swarmed here for jobs and and now it's like not only are we sort of in an economic um kind of plateauing in in oil and gas for sure but um on a global scale there's this very strong movement away from oil and gas and so you know the question becomes well we we're pricing we we've got to price oil and gas in in a way that takes into account environmental loss mm-hmm. and damage and how do we do that how do we how do we account for for the the damage locally uh, regionally nationally globally and and price things according to those potential or or actual losses and and then feed that revenue back into the system to transition to renewables mm-hmm. you know that's what we're trying to grapple with in in sort of like what they call uh environmental economics yeah i was listening to a podcast earlier this morning about being more transparent in the decision making for things like carbon tax it just brings up a lot of questions in my head because i'm like what is the one biggest like motivator that holds people back from wanting to transition hmm. or at least just even thinking about the transition towards renewables especially when scientists have continuously done research on how the greenhouse gases and the carbon emissions have negatively impacted the environment. Being from a developed province, I'm going to break it down to a province level, but uh, being here, we don't necessarily get get to experience the negative impacts of that right away. So it's kind of hard for uh, for the people who have lived here for so long and have seen the country prosper and the province prosper from the natural resources that we have, that it has normalized the idea that the economy will only improve from the oil and gas industry. While that is not the case, because we have seen so many projects and uh, so much push towards the energy transitioning process, um, I think people forget that that is also bringing jobs and that is also bringing uh, new like sources of education to universities and stuff like that. So the jobs are not going to be lost. Um, and like the oil and gas industry, it's not going to go away from one day to another. That's why it's called the energy transitioning and not the energy like halt. So when it comes to transparency, it's important to keep in mind that the costs from things like carbon tax are funding projects that have a promising outcome. And maybe promising is not the greatest word because there's so much, like it's so much more than that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the thing I that came up for me there was I feel like we're we're hyper uh, hyper aware of of, of opposing views, mm-hmm. and I think we all probably let ourselves be swept up in in these false false dichotomies for instance it's mm-hmm. like you're either for or against you're either you're either hot or cold yeah and there's an in between and there's always <laughs> a, an in between it's always more complicated than just two um 
two options mm-hmm. and uh, divisiveness plays into this here. And yeah, I'm, I'm taking a course right now on leadership and it's a weird way to cap off my, my MSC, but I'm, as the days go by, I'm kind of seeing more and more its use because, you know, kind of gets in the nitty gritty. What is leadership really? And, um, from what I can tell in doing most of the readings, you know, at this point, it's like, it's about letting other people have a voice. And in other words, it's got nothing to do with being like this dominant male figure in a room full of people. It's got nothing to do with that at Mm -hmm. all. That is like maybe management, but it's horrible management. It's, it's about leadership in the 21st century. It's going to be about enabling, um, enabling people, to work to their strengths, right? And, you know, that's a big part of, going back to divisiveness, I think the more people feel empowered, the more they'll be able to critically think mm-hmm. and say, you know what, maybe maybe neither of these views is entirely accurate or entirely complete. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot more nuance all the way down. And, you know, let's stop, chirping at each other like this is the school ground in sixth grade and instead start to formulate just really rich dialogue like we're doing right now you know but with people we wouldn't normally that's the trick right we can sit here all day and talk because we're so similar Mm -hmm. in our values but you know let's pull people in who 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 are perceived to be on the other side of the fence Mm -hmm. That's that's the trick. Yeah, I was actually <laughs> just talking about that with somebody yesterday because lately I found that even just doing the podcast and like talking and like letting my thoughts go <laughs> for a second, I can more critically analyze my perspective and understand myself a little bit better. With conversation, I think you also have to be open to the other person's perspective, of course, and then be willing to have that conversation. Because whether you agree or not, it's going to open up your your opinion about things. It's going to maybe allow for uh, actual evidence to play in part on your opinion. And there's no wrong that can come from that because you're going to grow in every sense. That's why I feel like for a long time <laughs> they've been saying communication is key because <laughs> it really yeah. is like just trying to understand each other not necessarily jump mm-hmm. to conclusions right away and then um it's okay if like if you're if you find yourself in the wrong i feel you have to be willing to be vulnerable in that mm-hmm. position to just let yourself learn um and i think maybe that's what happens majority of the time here with um with people that are so against like renewable energy and uh, mm-hmm. so against uh letting oil and gas go it's just they don't they don't really they they don't really understand what the point is and um and it's not about just oh we're gonna lose jobs or what are we gonna have if it's not oil and gas or whatever it is it's just it's not always the enemy that's um that's like trying to get you out is just mostly for the better of your future you know there's like way more things again Mm -hmm. it's not just black and white it's there's always more complexity to an issue yeah, definitely. Definitely. A lot of great points there. So what a great conversation. So for the last couple minutes of our episode, I wanted to throw in a fun little clip from our conversation with Ian. 
Windy.com. Windy.com. Go to windy.com. If you're an environmental person, it is the most fascinating way to waste time online <laughs> all day long as you kind of space out and become tired of your lectures on Zoom or Collaborate. I promise you there are so many filters you can put on when you're at windy.com, especially if you're a geography person, which I am, you know, like it shows so many layers. It's um, so fun. And you can go to any city. Oh, yeah. It's like being on Google Maps, except there's a ton of layers pertaining to climate. Oh, yeah. that's really And cool. environmental conditions un unfolding in real time. Oh, no yeah. way. Yeah. Oh, it's an really aggregate of, 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 of weather data. And they interpolate it across areas that are, you know, less um, less documented. But yeah, it's great. It's fascinating. Go to windy.com. Um, download the app. It's free. Look at webcams all yeah. over the world, and they're all in one place. You don't have to go searching. Yeah, and it's a great way to kind of see it all kind of in one big picture. You know, the whole world in front of you. Um. We live in a very fascinating and incredible world. So make sure you take care of it and it'll do the same for you. Thanks for tuning in and we'll catch up next week.